I now have the, uh, the pleasure and the honor of introducing part two of our closing session, our final keynote conversation of the weekend. Wendy Davis, Democrat of Fort Worth, was first elected to represent Senate District 10 in 2008 and was reelected in 2012, on both occasions winning improbably in a majority Republican district. In the 83rd legislative session, she served as vice chair of the Open Government Committee and as a member of the Transportation Economic Development and Veterans Affairs and Military Installations Committees, and she introduced more than 100 bills on a wide range of subjects. But for nearly everyone on every side of the political spectrum, fans and foes, celebrators and haters, she is best known, overwhelmingly known, not just in the state, but across the country and around the world for her 11-hour filibuster of legislation that sought to restrict access to abortions. No Texas Democrat since Ann Richards has become so famous so quickly in so many places. And that sudden notoriety and fundraising capability has been the basis for calls that she run for governor and also the impetus for some pretty horrific name-calling that is unfortunately par for the course these days in politics. In any case, in a few days, she'll reveal her future plans. Born in Rhode Island, raised from age 11 in Fort Worth, Senator Davis has an undergraduate degree from Texas Christian University and a law degree from Harvard. She previously served for nearly nine years on the Fort Worth City Council. We are so lucky to have her with us to wrap up the 2013 Texas Tribune Festival. Please join me in welcoming the Honorable Wendy Davis. Senator, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So you're going to do this? (laughs) Well, I read Politico and the AP. They say you're going to do this. You're going to do this. I'm going to announce on Thursday what I'm going to do. Right. Are you going to tell us you're Batman? I mean, what are you announcing? Uh, You're going to announce your plans, right? I'm going to announce my plans. And early on, you said uh, a couple months ago, either running for governor or state senate, so even if you can't tell us what we all think we know now, still it's going to be one or the other. other. One or the other. Uh, You didn't correct those reports at the end of last week. You didn't confirm them, but you didn't correct them. I neither confirm nor deny them. Nor deny anything. Can, Can you give us a couple of seconds just into the calculation that went through your mind the last couple of months in the run up to whatever the decision is? What were you thinking about as you ultimately made a decision? Well, obviously, when, when you think about doing something this big, um, and that may seem improbable, you want to make sure that you're not doing something foolhardy. Yep. When I ran for my Senate district, in, when I first made that decision in 2007 and began that race for the 2008 election, I spent a lot of time with people who understood how to define whether a path exists. And I knew when I entered that race that it would be hard, but I knew it was possible. And because of that, I knew when I asked people to support me and to help me through their time, their energy, their financial resources, I knew I was asking them to partner with me to do something that I believed we could make happen. And I have gone through that same analysis in making the decision that I'll be announcing on Thursday. On Thursday. 
the, uh, you, you've alluded to the improbability of it. The numbers in the state have been the numbers, but obviously that's a calculation that any candidate for office as a Democrat these days makes. You run not because of the numbers, you run despite the numbers. Indeed. Indeed. Um, I want to ask you about the filibuster as a catapult for your celebrity. I imagine that as a celebrity now, you are taking the good and the bad together. Anybody who finds themselves thrust into the spotlight uh, uh, is is forced to, to take a lot of stuff that maybe they don't want, the bad with the good. What's it been like? What has it been like these last couple of months? You've lost your privacy, I suspect. Um, in some respects, um, but I, I tell you, Evan, the thing that's been most striking to me about it, mm-hmm. um, and I've been you know, traveling around the state a lot. Um, I've been outside the state a bit, and I'm so struck by young women who come up to me many of them with tears in their eyes, Um, some of them who don't even say a word. They just hug me, and the expression on their face says so much. What I'm struck by is that somehow that day tapped into what was a a feeling for many young women uh, that they weren't being heard. Mm -hmm. And it's been remarkable to see their reaction to that, and it's been um, humbling to have been privileged to play a role in making that happen. Yeah. That, that is going to be, I suspect, whatever, again, you make your announcement on Thursday, the, this idea that women's voices are not being heard in Texas. Senator Van de Pute articulated that specifically on that evening. But Perfect. thematically, as you go forward, you could imagine a scenario where that becomes the basis for a conversation with the state. Are women's voices being heard? Are women being treated the way they should be? Yes, I, I can thematically imagine that as a conversation, and I can, I can thematically imagine a broader conversation, too, in Texas about whether people, just folks who are working every day, taking care of their kids, trying to make ends meet, whether they feel like they're being heard in Texas. I don't think it's unique mm-hmm. to gender. Um, I do think we have some real issues where Texans feel like the folks who have been representing them in leadership positions in Austin aren't reflecting the things that they and their families value and and care most deeply about. I have to ask you about the haters for a second, and then we're going to move into very quickly a a conversation about issues because I think it's important for people, again, whatever your decision, people understand what you think about the big, broad issues that affect uh, Texans, but I want to ask you about the haters. You are, for all practical purposes, now a walking effigy. Every time you go on Twitter, every time you talk to people out in the world, you hear the most extraordinary and, and, uh, and awful things. You've heard abortion Barbie on, on damn. Uh, how do you deal with that? How do you personally process it, and how do you deal with it publicly? How do you maintain yourself, and how do you steal yourself for what you surely know is coming? If it's bad now, it's apt to get a whole lot worse. I've been through a lot of tough fights in my life, Evan, um, and I've learned to weather them. I've been in political office, and, and as you know, I, I fought for my seat uh, twice really hard. I fought a very difficult redistricting battle that everyone said we could not right. succeed in, and, and we did. And I've, I've leathered up a little bit over that, for sure. Yeah. Um, but I just try to keep in my heart and, and at the forefront of my mind what it is that I'm working on yep. and remind myself that I truly believe in the things and the people that I stand for and that I am capable of, of withstanding 
all kinds of heat, um, all kinds of nastiness, yeah. in order to try to deliver what I think is an important message for people who feel like they're not being heard. They will attempt to litigate this entire election, you know, on the, uh, about one issue, abortion. They will say this is uh, whoever their candidate is versus the woman who was at the center of the abortion fight. They're going to try to make this entirely about that. You think that the campaign can transcend it? If there were going to be a statewide campaign. If there were. <laughs> see, see what I did there? I actually thought, you know. If there were going to be one, you think it could conditional tense past participle perfect <laughs> you think it could be tra it could transcend that well emotion. look I, yeah. you know i think texans when when you talk to them about what they're thinking about yeah. um, these issues these divisive issues that keep getting thrown into the middle of a room uh, where legislators go into their corners and come out with their boxing gloves on those aren't the things that texans want to hear us talking about what they care about is public education? Is their child getting a good education? Yeah. Can their child go to college? Is there a path for their child's future? Um, are, is there a path for them to have a good job? Are they going to have adequate health care? These are things that really matter to people. Um, are we creating the kind of climate to keep a healthy workforce and a vibrant economy that's what people care about. And that's what they want their leaders to be in the business of talking about. Right. So I think that we're going to see, if there were a statewide were, campaign, if there were. Um, we'll see that the expression of that um, yeah. come out in, in many, many ways. Okay. Well, let, let's talk about education since you mentioned it. People forget short-term memory in the state of Texas. Before there was this filibuster, yeah. there was that filibuster. Right? You actually have been at this before. At the end of the 2011 legislative session, you, uh, education was the focus of, of your last uh, extended period of talking. Right? Yeah. You were concerned about the cuts to public education. That's an issue that is, is important to you. Very. Yeah. Or how are we doing? You know, we cut all that money out of public education last time. People still fight over exactly how much it was, $4 billion, $5.4 billion, whatever it was. A lot was put back in this last time, three and a half billion or so, plus a little, bit, right. a little bit more kind of over the shoulder. Uh, problem solved, or do we still have more work to do? Well, certainly not problem solved. Um, and of course, Judge Dietz is going to be taking up the litigation right. that 600 school districts across Texas are involved in again in January. And it would be very interesting to hear his perspective on how well we did. Well, he declined to, to stop the progress of the suit, as some hoped he would because you all put more money back in. That's so that right. tells you he was not totally impressed by what the legislature did. <laughs> it, it, indeed. Yeah. And, and you know what, what he said in his original opinion, uh, finding in favor of the plaintiffs on all, all counts that they had asked him to consider, was that the underfunding of public schools in Texas was about a 10 to $11 billion number. Annually. That's right. right yeah. uh, we got back you know, $3.4 billion over the biennium in this last legislative session. But we know, uh, I certainly feel strongly, that there are so many places where we can be doing better, and we failed to do that. When we started the budget, uh, when it first rolled out onto the Senate floor, as you recall, Evan, um, it only restored $1.5 billion toward those funding cuts. And I was one of only two people who voted against the budget that day. Um, then we fought like hell for the rest of the session. 
Um, as a, a good bipartisan working group should, different perspectives came to the table, and there was a good push and pull, which is the natural uh, consequence of a healthy democracy, and we added $3.5 billion total back. It's not nearly enough. Yeah. And, and what we know are that programs that were helping kids who really need a little leg up in the public education arena have been dramatically underfunded, and we're going to see the consequence of that. And, and if we don't start thinking more responsibly about investing in our most important investment we can make, our human capital, we're going to see the impact of that in our economy. Um, I know you had Steve Murdoch here we did. talking during tri Tribune Fest, um, and he had some, some really good... Well, the numbers, are, the numbers are stark in terms of the demographic change that's not just coming, but is here. That's right. And the open question is, to what degree are we changing our thinking about budgeting and policy to, to meet that head on? But I want to go back and ask on this question of funding. You know, this has been a problem for how long? We seem to go through this yeah. cycle of so it's not constitutional the way we fund public schools. Then we come back and we come up with a solution. It's a little bit held together with spit and chewing gum. And then we find that it's not constitutional again and then go back. We can put a man on the moon. I can pause live television. But we can't figure out how to fix the finance system of yeah. public why is this so? Why is it so hard? Why can't we get it right finally and have it stick? Well, it shouldn't be so hard. Um, and I, you know, I think there, there's a backdrop, of course, of many members in our legislature who are worrying more about the report card grade that they're getting. Scorecards. They're scorecards. Yeah. Um, primary elections that they may face and the consequences of standing up and doing the right thing on behalf of the school children of Texas. And that's a shame um, that we've gotten to a place where those... Uh, perspectives have become more influential than looking down the long-term road of Texas and understanding that if we fail to come together and do the right things for public education and higher education, this wonderful story that we tell about the health and vibrancy of the Texas economy is, is likely to, to begin to crumble. And that's something that we all need to care about. Um, even if you don't care about an individual child who may be having a hard time in school and, and that this particular program might be helpful to them, if all you care about is the self-interest of making sure that our economy is strong and that we have a workforce that's trained uh, to support that economy, then you ought to be interested in investing in public education. But, but aren't, Senator, you understand there are basically competing worldviews right now in the state of Texas. One says we don't have a revenue problem, we have a spending problem, right? We had some colleagues, in fact, from the Fort Worth delegation on the House side up here yesterday in a panel of Tea Party leaders mm -hmm. who said, you know, we actually, we, we spent 26% more than we did the previous time, you know, this, we're spending way too much money, we're spending ourselves into oblivion and... You know, we're not spending on the right things. One worldview, and the governor articulated it when he came back from the presidential campaign trail, is we don't have a revenue problem, we have a spending problem. But the alternate worldview is we don't have a spending problem, we have a failure to invest problem. How do you bring those two sides which seem to see the world so differently together? How do you persuade those people who say we have a spending problem that you have to Well, I invest? think in large part it starts with an honest understanding of the resources that we have available to us. 
And I know you recall, Evan, that when we closed out that 2011 legislative session, it was with a comptroller's estimate about what our revenues would be that turned out to be sorely, sorely. Right. How'd that work out for us? Not so well. Not so well. Yeah. Um, and we actually had $8.8 billion more available to us than her revenue estimate indicated. And right. of course, people can err. I mean, no, it's not a perfect Right, science. but that's not a margin of error mistake. It's a, it's a huge, 8. huge 8 billion error. $8.8 billion is a lot. And, you know, the, the, the real skeptics might think that, in part, things like that are purposeful, that it's part of helping to constrain and choke down um, our investment in the future of Are, are of you Texas. one of those who believes that there was a conspiracy to spend less money by misreporting to the legislature how much we had available? I believe that she could have done a much better job of, of estimating where we were, and that had we known... I would like to think that the legislature would have made a decision not to make the cuts that were, were made. In fact, and some of your colleagues have said as much, that if they only knew back then right. how much they had to spend, they wouldn't have cut public education as much. That's right. right. Um, and and we, you know, we need to connect with our community and hear their priorities in terms yeah. of how they want to see us solve this, this problem. So, for example, uh, we have resources in the rainy day fund. Uh, we did, of course, I think make some significant progress in this past session, uh, asking that our voters give us their perspective on investing some of those resources in water infrastructure, right. for Rem example. Remains to be seen whether they'll do it. It, it, but, it does, but, but we'll I think it's important that we're at least putting that question out there. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we need to have more of that town hall community input to what we're doing at the state level. It's one of the things that I learned in local government. As you know, I, I served on the city council in Fort Worth for nine years. And bringing people together, uh, listening to what their concerns were, what their priorities were, uh, bringing diverse perspectives together at a right. table, and listening and, and looking down the road toward how we try to bring those perspectives to a place where they could agree, and then leading toward a solution that was an outcome that both sides bought into was part and parcel of local government. And, and I loved it. And what I loved about it yeah. was that we were able to work together without anyone getting bogged down into what the party label next to their name said they ought to be doing. Right. And I'd like to see us returning more to that kind of conversation in the state of Texas, and I think most people would like to see but us. But of course, the alternate view of that, Senator, is that, well, go ahead, do your thing. The alternate view of that, Senator, is that the thing we hate most in the world is California, and California, California governs by initiative and referendum by and large. There are some people who believe that the legislature actually made a bad decision to kick the water and transportation funding to the voters that we send you all to Austin to make those hard calls for us. And you make those hard calls on other issues. Why kick this to the voters on water and transportation? And for that matter, on education, why feel the need to go home and ask the voters' permission to lead? That's and what we send you there to do, lead. You're making a, an excellent point, and I agree with you. And I, I want to make clear that I'm not suggesting that we lead through referendum and that we have a vote on every decision that we make. When people elect us, they elect us, and we hope we're bringing their perspective right. to the table. Um, I've tried very hard to do that, and I know colleagues of mine on both sides of the party aisle do the same. Yep. But unfortunately, when we get to that capital, 
many become way too far removed from the people that they're representing, the voices of the people who elected them and the perspectives and the concerns that they have. You sound like Ted Cruz. And instead, well, you know, we agree on, on some things. Um, but instead... They now have their headline, actually. Um, and see, we shouldn't be afraid to say things like that in politics. Um, but in, instead, of course, what happens in that environment um, is there's a, a handful of people that have influence over decision-making that's really not reflective of Texans as a whole. And I think a lot of legislators saw that after those budget cuts in 2011. They went home, and they were told in no uncertain terms that that scorecard that they were worried about is not what matters. What matters are the impacts to the families that they represent back home. And they heard from their parents, they heard from their teachers, they heard from school administrators all over the state about the impacts that those cuts were having in their day-to-day lives. And that's why we saw, I believe, when we came back in this last legislative session, we saw an approach that was different than that. We did see a much more unified approach toward trying to find a way to restore those cuts. It was kind of a bipartisan issue, Not as much. It was more of a bipartisan issue than most at the the Capitol. Do you believe that we have enough revenue in this state to meet all of our needs, not just on education, but across the board? I, I believe that we do. But I believe we have to really sit back and be thoughtful and smart about how we make our revenue and spending decisions. Um, And a huge piece of that, of course, is the exemptions that we give in the state of Texas today. I was very supportive of, I think I signed on to, uh, the bill that Senator Corona and Senator Ellis, a Republican and a Democrat, um, in a bipartisan way, sponsored this last legislative session, asking us to take a serious look, a sunset review type of a look, looking at the 35-plus billion dollars every biennium that we give up in loopholes and exemptions, Um, setting aside, of course, property tax exemptions, which I think are uniformly supported, but these other uh, exemptions that exist in the state of Texas, and to ask whether they still make sense. When I was on the city council in Fort Worth, I chaired the Economic Development Committee for many years, and we were awfully good in Fort Worth, I think, one of the best at making sure that when we were giving tax dollars toward helping make something happen, helping to create growth in our economy and helping to add jobs, we were very good at the but-for test. But for our participation, would this investment occur? And then after we answered that question, we were exceedingly good at oversight and making sure that the promises that were made with regard to the investment that would be delivered, with regard to the jobs that would be delivered, were actually realized. And if they weren't, we took our tax dollars back. And the state of Texas, as as big and grand as we are and, and as wonderful a job as we've been doing in growing our economy, there are improvements that could be made in terms of the way we make those decisions and demonstrate that we can be more responsible with our taxpayer dollars while still being a very good and healthy, vibrant partner in in keeping our economy growing and our jobs growing. Um, I was really pleased this session to successfully pass 
for the first time since its creation, an audit of the Texas Enterprise Fund. It seems illogical that we had not done that before. Um, but those kinds of conversations, I think, are terribly important. And we've got to look at our existing stable of revenue before yeah. we even begin to talk about whether more is needed. Are, are there any specific exemptions you want to cite as an example of something? You mentioned auditing the, the, uh, the, the, the TEF uh, now. But I'm talking about is there a specific exemption in that $35 billion that you would say, uh, again, were there a statewide race? Mm-hmm. Were there a new governor? You would say this is the kind. Of, this is an example of the kind of thing that maybe has, has run its course, and we ought to take it back. I, I really don't feel like I can say that because yeah. what we need instead is a uniform look, yeah. um, a very objective look, with the input of the legislative budget okay. board, the comptroller, right. the legislature, making those determinations, and receiving, of course, the input from our chambers of commerce and other business partners in Texas to make sure that we're making good decisions and any changes that we would make. You say we shouldn't be looking at new revenue sources until we make sure that the money we have now is being spent properly on education and other issues. You know that during the session there was discussion that we talked about of water and transportation and whether we have adequate funds to put toward each of those very important things yeah. for the state. And we're at a point now where even Republicans are proposing new revenue sources on, on transportation. Senator Williams, Senator Eltife, others are talking about that. Yeah. Are you prepared, whether or not you run to say we should, not be wet, that we should not be raising taxes in this state to put more money in the budget to pay for education or any of these other programs. Will you take a tax increase off the table for those kinds of things? I would certainly take a sales tax, a property tax increase off the table, absolutely. And would, you know, if, if I had one day, someday, the privilege of, of being in a leadership position that could veto legislation like that, I would. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I I think there have been some very uh, important conversations about that and some good ideas put on the table. Um, I think, you know, I supported a bill that came out of the Transportation Committee a couple of sessions ago. Uh, Again, uh, not to want to lead by referendum, but it was certainly um, the the best solution within this legislative environment uh, that would have asked our voters whether they wanted to increase certain fees Um, their vehicle registration fee, as an example, um, in exchange for improving our transportation infrastructure. Uh, We're, of course, hearing right now uh, that TxDOT is talking about turning some of our roads back to gravel. And for anyone who cares about the health and vibrancy of our economy, we know we cannot turn our roads back to gravel. Well, the optics are bad at a minimum, right? In, in, indeed. And, yeah. you know, for, think about rural Texas. I mean, forget the challenges that we have in some of our urban areas. But yeah. in rural Texas, the farm-to-market roads, the investment in those, they grew our economy. They truly did. They made Texas what Texas became. And there were leaders at one time that were willing to talk about making those kinds of investments so that all of Texas could play a role in yeah. our healthy, strong economy and be a beneficiary of it. And we've not really been having those conversations lately, and it's time for us to have them again. Let me move from public ed to higher ed. We're sitting on a campus that has been at the center of a debate over what uh, kind of reforms should come to the higher ed policy uh, arena. And you hear on this campus and elsewhere about funding of higher education dropping precipitously over this last generation to the point that some say, are we out of compliance with the constitutional promise of a university of the first class? 
not just here, but across the public university systems? Are we putting enough money into public education, or into, into public higher education, to the public universities? What, what do we do about that? When, when you look at the rank order of priorities in the unrestricted portion of the budget, people typically go, according to the polls, public ed, health care, higher ed. Higher ed always finishes third of three. So from the state's perspective, what should we be doing with higher ed that we're not now doing, and where's the money going to come from? Yeah. Um, excellent questions. I'll start by talking about my own personal experience okay. in Texas. Started at Tarrant County College, um, on to TCU. All of that was made possible because of the climate of investment in higher education that was going on in Texas yeah. at the time. And I had a path that made education affordable to me in spite of the fact that I came from a background of poverty. There are a lot of families right now who want so much for their children to have those same opportunities, and they just don't. And it's not just hitting people in the very low-income brackets where I was. It's hitting people in middle-income families. Uh, sometimes they're sort of in the damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situation because they can't qualify for maybe the same kind of financial aid. Uh, financial aid has been constrained at the state level and at the federal level. It's a problem in both places. Um, but if we don't invest in making those possibilities, the, the hope, the promise of a future like that available to young Texans who want it, we will pay the price down the road. There's no question we'll pay the price. And, and of down course, the road. with the change in the population, again, not coming but here, we're going to have a whole lot more people who may be first in their family. That's right. Or first in their community, even, to go to college. And what kind of protections, as a legislature or as a state, do we need to be putting in place so that they have a pipeline to get into, whether it's a traditional four year school, two year situation, community college, or even a technical school? Are we doing enough in that respect? Part of it is making sure, and I think Texas is doing some incredible things in this arena, making sure that we're maximizing the overlap between what's happening in the high school classroom and the college classroom. And so we're seeing more and more of our, uh, our, our independent school districts offering those dual credit classes. Yeah. So high, that, high school to college. That's right. And, and kids are getting basically a free, in some instances, literally, two years of college credits before they ever graduate from high school. You're for this. You think I'm this completely good. for that. And it's an innovative way of making higher ed possible without having to think about where's the money going to come from. I guess let me come back, though, on the money thing. Should we be putting more money into higher ed? Should we be figuring out a way in the budget to put more money toward the public universities? And if so, where would it come from, since you've said you think we may have enough revenue in the budget as is? In 2003, um, the tuition in Texas was, of course, uh, deregulated. Right. And that was done during a tough budget year. Yeah. Um, the legislature had a decision to make. Should it continue to grow its investment in higher ed, or should it instead allow our universities to charge higher tuitions in order to make up yep. the revenues that they needed? And we all know what the impact of that has been. I think from that period, the tuition has doubled, if not even more than doubled, in our university system. Right. still a bargain by a lot of people's standards. Indeed. Indeed. But certainly priced, uh, for many families, the opportunity to go out yeah. of their, their um, abilities. And I think we have to really be thinking about that. 
There have been some responses in the last couple of legislative sessions, which I've supported, um, asking that if a student enters college, yep. that for the entire four years that they're there, their tuition won't go up. They'll at least have the guarantee of a tuition freeze for right. their four-year period. That's a Governor Perry of time. A, a plank, right? Yes, he's, he's, it's, he's a, that, it's a very good idea. Predictability of tuition. In, indeed, it's a very good idea. Um, but the state, I think, is going to have to consider that while those tuition levels have risen as they have, the fact that our ability to help in the financial aid arena has declined means that we're pricing people out of the opportunity to grow through a college education. Yep. And everyone deserves that if they want it. So everyone would you be for re-regulating tuition? If the state uh, can pull its responsibility uh, load forward and make that happen, Obviously, what we don't want are for our universities to suffer uh, yep. because they're suddenly being choked and, and don't have enough resources to do what and they need to do. And that's after they've been able to raise their tuition. They don't have enough resources. E exactly. Right. So, I mean, if, if the state were going to say we're going to go back into a situation of regulating tuition, right. obviously it would need to be in a position of stepping up to the plate and helping to make colleges whole for that. You alluded earlier to the health of the Texas economy and the relationship between education, public, and higher, to the workforce and to the good economy. You know, the governor, once on the presidential campaign trail and potentially again, brags a lot about the Texas miracle. You know, more jobs created in the last 13 years while he's been in office than all 49 states combined. Some period of time, looking back three, four years, we're responsible for 8 to 8.5% 8 of the population growth in the country, but 40% of the job growth. Now, you can take any statistic and turn it upside down. Sure. The underbelly is never attractive, right? But does the governor have a point? I mean, the economy has been in this state pretty good, and if it were bad, he'd get to blame whether he deserves it. So he gets the credit whether he deserves it for being the guy in charge. Well, indeed. Indeed. I, you know, I don't think it's unfair for him to be proud of and to be bragging about um, the impact that he and others have had in Texas, but it's certainly been a group effort. Yeah. Um, but I do think that part of that story that's not being told is that right now Texas stands 49th out of 51 states in what it's investing in per pupil education. I say 51 yeah. states because including DC, DC that's right. We're down included from 40, in that. 41st before the 11th session right. to 49th out of 51. 49 per pupil spending on public ed. That is right. That is true. And and so you can't simultaneously, I think. Yeah brag about the healthy economy that you have and compare it uh, to the country as a whole. That's a fair thing to do. But then simultaneously not own the fact that in spite of your healthy economy, you're not investing in the future of what your state can and should be. And you're not investing in the future potential of the individuals that you represent in Texas. But don't people, Senator, don't people come here with their eyes open? You hear a lot about low tax, low service. Yeah. Get what you pay for, pay for what you get. People come here knowing that they have low taxes. That's one of the things we brag about. But the thing that accompanies that is, is low services. Molly Ivins used to say we're Mississippi with better roads, right? <laughs> I'm not sure that we're not Maybe just not Mississippi now. now, actually. That's right, yeah. Um, but, but, but you understand this, that the idea of Texas not providing very much in the way of social services is not a new concept. It's ever thus, and it potentially would be ever thus, given the decision to make low taxes a priority. 
I'm not talking about social services. I'm talking about public education. So you, you and, put that in a different category entirely, well, I, investment I, spending I on social infrastructures. I, I do because, well, first of all, it's the only thing constitutionally we're required to fund as yeah. a state legislature. Um, and it, it obviously is and has the most tremendous impact in terms of the future health of our economy. Right. We, of course, in the public ed committee, although I was not on public ed this session, I did attend almost all of the public education committee hearings, and we heard a great deal from employers around this state. Um, the Chemical Council kind of led the charge for that. I believe his name was Hector Rivera, the person who was a spokesperson. But he was speaking on behalf of 300 different industry sectors in Texas saying, we don't have the workforce here that we need. And if you don't do something about educating out of the high school system and into the technical and vocational arena, uh, people who can satisfy our need for workers either will leave or will bring new people in from out of state. And what yeah. that will mean to the people who, <clears throat> who grew up and who pay, whose families paid taxes here and went through our education system here is that they won't have the ability to benefit from the economy that they should have the ability to benefit from. And I think that his testimony and that of chambers, all, chambers of commerce all over the state through this last legislative session played a significant role in the legislature coming together in a bipartisan way and trying to make some improvements. And I hope and expect that they'll continue to do that because their voices uh, are truly the voices that understand more than anyone yeah. what the failure to invest in education is going to be. You know, the governor has spent a lot of time out. A governor's role, you may conditionally one day find this out. The, the governor spends a lot of time outside the state. Our current governor uh, 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 luring companies away from other states to come to Texas. One wonders if the education issue, as water and transportation apparently have, become an impediment at some point to those businesses coming here. They're beginning to ask, the governor has even said this, do you have adequate water, do you have adequate roads going forward? And that one of the arguments for addressing those issues is it may be impeding our economic development efforts. One wonders if education becomes the third on that list of three or even goes up higher. I, I, it was my experience in Fort Worth, again, yeah. to go back to my chairmanship of the Economic Development Committee, we would bring companies in. Um, I, I have a distinct memory of trying to get Boeing when they were making a decision about where their corporate headquarter relocation would be. And our roads, they took a helicopter flight um, and wanted to kind of see what was going on. And they saw I-35 in peak congestion, and they said, no thanks. Yeah, it's a big bummer, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. But they also, they also wanted to know about our schools, and they looked very closely at the rankings of our schools and the performance of our students, and you know, good companies who care about the quality of life that they're going to transplant their workers into care about things like that. And if we want to continue to compete in the country's economy and in the global economy, we're going to need to make sure we can deliver the kind of, of quality of life both transportation to move goods and obviously because we don't want to all go insane, stuck in traffic on a, on a freeway, um, water infrastructure to support our economic development, and a good education system. All of those things are absolutely essential to keeping Texas in the prominent place in the economy that it is today. Okay, we're going to ask people to get in line. I suspect there's going to be a mad rush here to have questions <laughs> on either side. 
And let me just tell you in advance, please, no speechifying. Uh, be respectful. We'll shut you down if you're not respectful. Let's disagree agreeably if you want to disagree. And we'll get to as many questions as time permits, and I'll apologize in advance if I can't get to them. While you're lining up, let me ask the senator one question that came out of the last panel discussion, and that is about the relationship between Texas and Washington. Many of the issues you're talking about, Texas wants to go its own way, at least according to the leadership now. And politically, a challenge for anybody running for any office in the state, not you, not this office, but any offices, what should the affect be toward Washington? How do you position yourself toward the current administration and toward D.C. institutionally? We have a guy running for governor on the other side who I think you've heard has said, I get up every day, I go to work, I sue the Obama administration, I go home. Clearly you know, or some, ver I'm maybe paraphrasing that, clearly you know, but I think that's basically it, clearly you know that the D.C.-Texas tension is going to be the staple of any discussions we have going forward. So how should a Democrat, not necessarily you, and not necessarily running for this office, but how should a Democrat regard the president, the National Democratic Party, and D.C. as it relates to these and other issues? Well, I'll start by saying I think that that kind of acrimony makes for great political theater. But it doesn't solve real problems of real people. Texas is unique, and we have a unique perspective and approach to how we confront our challenges. And I think that our unique voice is important. But the idea that we would hold uh, with complete hostility um, what could be a partner in, in making Texas a better place doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think that people are... are they're tired of the acrimony. Um, and I, I know I'm tired of watching what I see as so broken in D.C. right now on yep. both sides of the aisle. Um, I don't want that to be Texas. I want us to show that we can rise above that, that we can come up with solutions to real problems and leave ideological theater at home and just try to get some things done. And I have trust and faith in the people in the Texas legislature to do that. We've got some amazing people on both sides of the aisle who work that way. Yeah. And if we will not only get out of their way, but embrace that kind of, of mentality and that kind of work ethic and, and drive and momentum, we'll do great things here. Does a candidate running for governor, whoever that candidate might be, want the president and his folks here, or does that candidate want the president and his folks <laughs> on an extended holiday through, through December of 2014? Oh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I am, am just proud to have an opportunity to be talking about the future of the state of Texas and really proud that hopefully uh, we'll have a platform to be able to do that soon. We'll okay. see. Let's do questions left, right, left, right. Oops. You first. Okay, th thank you. Do you support driver driving license for undocumented immigrants? Do you support driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants? In case you couldn't hear the question. Or not. Yes. Uh, yes, um, in our transportation committee, that was considered again this session. And employers, once again, you know, putting this back into a conversation about our economy, uh, were very um, insistent that we do that because 
we've seen a, a problem with not having driver's license available. I think it's important, obviously, that there be an identification that distinguishes uh, whether that person is a citizen or not a citizen. Uh, but the driver's license has, has been a real concern in terms of the impact it's had on our economic. But you know the driver's licenses for undocumented right. persons is a dog whistle for the Tea Party. and has been, yes. what, what was going all the way back to Hillary Clinton's first Senate race, at least yeah. as far back as that. So you're prepared to say, for the benefit of the economy, despite the heat I'll get on that, I'm for it. <laughs> Yes. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Anne Beeson with the Center for Public Policy Priorities. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Evan. Hi. Um, we are engaged in a fierce battle over the future of Texas with two very diametrically opposed ideologies fighting. Can you imagine a future for our state that actually brings together some of the people who believe they're in two very different camps now? And if so, how do we get there? Yeah, how, do you, how do you do that? Well, you know, I, in recent example, I think um, one of my political heroes in Texas was our former Lieutenant Governor Bill Ratliff. Mm -hmm. And he did that by leading through the example of respecting perspectives on both sides of the aisle. Um, by putting into positions of power people who had uh, come from different partisan backgrounds and then working to help them be collaborative, uh, working not to put um, divisive issues on the floor that would, would create a, a divide rather than a good working relationship between them. And I think that that kind of leadership could foster the environment where better cooperation could take place in You think government. Bill Ratliff could get elected today in Texas? Um, I, I, you know, I don't know if Bill Ratliff, unfortunately, could get through his party's primary. Um, and doesn't that illustrate the problem, Senator? I mean, to Ms. Beeson's yes. question and your answer, part of the problem is that the people who may be willing to reach across the aisle, not privately but publicly, have been drummed out of their party on both sides. I, I, I think it's happening more on one side than the other. Um, you don't think the disappearing center of Texas politics is a problem on both sides? You know, when I, when I look at the experience in the legislature right now, um, I, I don't think that that is the case. I think that Democrats uh, have had to work really hard moving to the middle to get anything done. And I think that that's what they've done. That's what we've done. Um, and it's why we've been able to work to accomplish so many of the things that we've accomplished. You feel like you've been willing to compromise session. and they haven't. They've not been willing to compromise. No, I, I don't want to say that. I, I don't want to sound completely unfair. But I don't think that we have, within the Democratic Party... I don't fear that when I'm standing up for the values of the people that I represent back home, I don't fear that I'm going to be run at by a primary opponent um, that pushes me to taking a vote on something that's not reflective of what I really think. Right. And what I can tell you from my experience in the last few legislative sessions, I of course won't name any names, but many of my Republican colleagues on a number of issues uh, coming to me and, and others in the Democratic Party and saying, oh, my God, we agree with you. Wish we didn't have to take a vote on this. I'm going to have to vote against you on it. 
Um, and and the, I'm going to have to vote against you on it is because of concern that in their party primary, they'll be held responsible yeah. for making a decision that is true to a report card, yeah. but it's not true to who they are. You really won't name names? Could you just give me initials? <laughs> Absolutely not. How about we rhyme? Does it rhyme with Arona? <laughs> You know, I thought I might catch you off guard there. Okay, go ahead. Ma'am. Yes. Uh, first, let me say thank you, thank you, thank you for literally standing up for Texas women. Thank you. So my question is this. Um, you have won in your heavily Republican district in uh, Fort Worth. What specific strategies... Um, have you used during those campaigns that you might use if you were to run for government? Well, let's actually send that. That's a great question. Let's put a fine point on that. So your district is plus nine Republican in a presidential year, I understand, and plus 17 Republican in a non-presidential year. There were literally, in those two elections, McCain-Davis voters, and there were Romney-Davis voters in your district. That's correct. Right? Has to be. I mean, mathematically, that has to be the case. So, what did you do? How did you get those people to come over to your side? Well, I, first of all, we, we really talk about values. We don't talk in a partisan frame. Um, I don't think most people think through a partisan lens. And if people believe that you're there working hard for them and standing up for them, I've certainly had my share of people say to me in my district back home, I'm a Republican, and I don't agree with everything that you do, but I agree that you stand for what you believe in and that you fight for us, and that's why I vote for you. Um, I hope that the integrity and the reputation of the work that I've been doing in the Senate would be reflected in a, a re-election in my Senate seat were I to do that or another election were I, were I to choose to do that. But making sure that your... Um, positions are reflective of what Texans want to hear us talking about, I think is really the name of the game. And not getting distracted by divisive issues that really aren't at the forefront of what Texans wish we'd be talking about and, and working on in state government. You acknowledge, uh, Senator, that it'd be tough for you or for another Democrat in a non-presidential year, given those numbers, to win in that district. It's tough. It's a tough district. Well, first of all, I'm not sure I agree completely with your, your numbers, um, but it's a tough district. It was a tough district in a presidential year. It would be a tough district in a non-presidential one. There's and what it's apt to be a, lo a, lo a low turnout, you know, lower turnout election, right? Yes. Yeah. And one of the things that we have been very successful at is turning out our base. Um, sometimes... People are staying home. I mean, look at the voting levels in Texas. Worst it's, in the country. Right. It's abysmal. Yeah. Um, they're staying home because they think, number one, oftentimes there's not anybody on the ticket that really reflects what they care about. Uh, number two, they just don't think their vote's going to make a difference. You know, there's the cynicism that we all have. Uh, we're busy. We're trying to take care of our kids. We're working two jobs, helping them do their homework at night. People feel disengaged, and they need to be invited to feel empowered in the yeah. process. And, and we've worked real hard to do that in Senate District 10. Okay. Question. Hey, Senator. Uh, oh, hey. How are you, Robert? 
Well, fine, thanks. Um, so now that we know that you agree... You already asked me a lot of questions. You don't get a turn, <laughs> This is one I forgot to ask you. Um, <laughs> now that we know that you agree with Ted Cruz on some things, um, do you disagree with President Obama on some things? And if so, what are those things? That's a great question. Oh, that's Robert Draper. Oh, <laughs> that's Robert Draper I can back barely there. See it. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, what do you... Dis- tell us something you disagree with uh, uh, President Obama on. Well, I certainly disagree with the position that the Justice Department and President Obama have taken on the American Airlines uh, merger. I disagree very strongly on that. Uh, That company, of course, is an integral part of the Texas economy. It's a very integral part of Fort Worth. And there are thousands upon thousands of jobs that are reliant on the success of that airline emerging from bankruptcy. And of course, with uh, United Air, uh, them being able to, US Air, excuse me, them being able to accomplish their merger. And I think that that was the wrong call. It's interesting that when the, was it United Continental uh, merger took place, that that same objection wasn't registered, in spite of the fact that I think there, there, there may have been some, some more valid questions about what was going on there. And it certainly didn't turn out as good for the Texas side of the equation as this merger would. Uh, as one of our Chamber of Commerce leaders said a couple of weeks ago, what, what state in their right mind would turn away the corporate relocation of a company like U.S. Air? And essentially, that's what that merger yeah. would assure. And Greg Abbott is with the Justice Department on this. Yes, he And is. if one were to run against him, one might hear about such a difference. <laughs> one, one might. One might. One might. <laughs> Sir. We're getting Hello. a lot closer to, to the third, I'll tell you. Every question we ask. So go ahead. Hello, yes. Senator. If you do run, hypothetically, uh, you have my vote. Thank but, you. It's a fact. But a question. Um, if you were to be elected governor, how would you... How would you handle Obamacare? Would you embrace the implementation of it in our state? I think Texas has to have a unique solution to the Affordable Care Act. And we've seen other states be able to accomplish that. For goodness sakes, Arizona was able to accomplish it, right? That's Jan Jan Brewer. That's the woman who put her finger in the president's face, right? That's right. That's an amazing thing. Exactly. I, I think that we can have a unique Texas approach to to that. Um, I'm really impressed by the work that one of my Republican colleagues, Representative Zerwas, committed to trying to put that Texas solution together in the last legislative session. And, of course, we had chambers of commerce and business leaders and our hospital associations here in force working with him to try to figure that out. I'm hopeful we'll make some movement on that in the next legislative session. Thank you, Senator. Question. So one of the most frustrating things about the 2010 gubernatorial race was Rick Perry's refusal to debate Bill White. Um, I mean, two years later, we kind of found out why that was. But, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so I guess my question is, do you think, hypothetically, if you run, that Greg Abbott would also hide from you in a debate? Or do you think, because he's debated the Supreme Court before, that he might not duck you? There's a lot of hypotheticals. There's a lot of hypotheticals on that question. You know, I can't second guess what what General Abbott would do. How how about just say that uh, if you were to run for some office, you're up in the debate. Indeed. Okay. Look forward to it. (laughs) 
I, I got her to answer half your question, basically. So, okay. Pam. Good morning, Senator Davis. My name is Selena Vasquez from Fort Worth. Selena. And the biggest, my biggest worry is, as the mother of a five-year-old son, Diego, is every night I can't sleep thinking about his education. He goes to school to a charter school. So I'm wondering what would be some of your solutions to help us with this public education problem in yeah, Texas. And, and you, thank you very much for your question. What did you think about the charter school legislation that got through this session? Uh, I, I was session? very happy with that legislation. Greater choice for parents, you think? It's greater choice, but not only that, it brought greater accountability for what's happening in the charter arena. We have some amazing charter schools. I don't know where Diego is going. Um, What I would hope to see happen is that some of that vibrancy, the, the unique approach that the charters are taking to public education will translate into the traditional public school arena. When charters were first uh, thought about and supported at the state level, not just in Texas but elsewhere, the whole idea is that we would allow these laboratories of learning excellence to grow and then to help transform what was happening in the traditional public school arena. We're seeing that to some degree. Houston is a good example of that where the Apollo project, which is part of their traditional public school system, has taken some of the the best practices of charter schools and translated that into what they're doing. And the results that they're seeing with their students are phenomenal. So I think making sure that we're translating that excellence across all traditional public schools in Texas and trying to be innovative. Number one, getting out of the way of our teachers and letting them teach. Um, I'm especially proud of the bipartisan work, again, that was done this session to take some stress off of standardized exams in the high school years. We've got to make some progress in grades three through eight in that regard as well. And hopefully that'll create a a better learning environment for Diego. But most importantly, we know we have to invest in public education. And we can't ignore it. We can't hope that it'll just take care of itself. We need to have pre-kindergarten available for every student in Texas. And we need to make sure that when students are falling through the cracks, uh, like we see happen in some cases, that we're investing in that child the time and the energy to help them be a success. And we have dramatically cut the funding to programs like the Student Success Initiative where that kind of work was being done. I was really impressed with our previous education commissioner, Scott's position, on that particular issue when he said, I'm not going to hold uh, high stakes accountability over schools until we can show that we are funding the student success initiative at the level that it needs to be funded so that we're not setting our students up for failure. I was really, really impressed with his position on that. Unfortunately, that's not the position that we're seeing today, but I think we have to return to it. I'm being told we have to cut off here. Uh, I'm really sorry. There are lots of great questions. I would love to be able to have you get to ask all of them. It sounds like you may have 
chances to come. <laughs> uh, Senator Davis, you could have been anywhere, anywhere this morning. You chose to be here. We appreciate enormously your being here. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much.